Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest is comic Roy Wood Jr. Roy was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, and he got his start in radio, working at a handful of stations. Sometimes he wrote, sometimes he produced or reported, but at heart, he's always been a stand-up, doing his act wherever his radio career brought him. In 2010, he finished third on Last Comic Standing, which is when his career took off. He got his own radio show, got acting roles, started getting booked in bigger venues. As a comic, he is a truth-teller, but he is also self-deprecating and weird. In 2017, he released his album Father Figure, which made a bunch of top ten lists. Losing weight, they tell you everything you need to know about losing weight, except for how much it's going to cost. But it's hard when it's time to lose weight. I'm uh, drinking all these damn smoothies. They expensive, five, six damn dollars for fruit and ice in a cup. How? And they trick you with smoothies. They try to trick us because they put all them little extra words and adjectives in the name of the smoothie. Don't fall for it. It's fruit and ice. Okay, you had a mango sunset peach tranquility, and you just, uh, no. Mm, I ain't had no tranquility. Take the tranquility out. Take that out. Hold the tranquility. That should, that should knock it down to 350. That should get it down. Smoothie's so expensive, I'm surprised rappers don't talk about them in their songs. And earlier this year, he did an hour-long special for Comedy Central called No One Loves You. Roy's got a pretty good day job, too. He's a correspondent on The Daily Show. His official title is Black Correspondent. Here's a classic bit of his from The Daily Show. This is from 2018. He called it the state of black stuff for 2018. It was basically a response to President Trump's State of the Union. The outlook, my friends, is bright. The Oscars are looking blacker than ever. Black Panther is setting box office records for the first time. An African-American woman will be speed skating at the White Oli- Winter Olympics. And in 2018, in 2018, there are over 400 black women running for public office. The black future is so promising. Oh, my God. I need some cocoa butter. I got to get ready. Got to get ready for all this blackness. So, black citizens, you ask where we is. The answer is on our way to a place where the state of black is stronger than ever. God bless black people. God bless Gail King. And God bless season two of Atlanta. <laughs> Roy Wood Jr., welcome to Bulls It's great to have you on the show. Uh, <laughs> How the heck are you? I'm well. <laughs> the state of blackness address that I gave the day after Donald Trump gave the state of the union address. Did you sign up for that or did somebody sign you up for that? Uh, it's interesting at The Daily Show where, you know, a lot of stuff is pitched to you. And every now and then I'll pitch some stuff. You know, I would say it's 50-50. But some of the best things that I've done on the show were not my brainchild. And it's so funny sometimes to see a white writer and a black writer come up to you and the black writer is like, like pitching you in the segment and the white writer is like kind of like playing the background. But they're also like going, yeah, we just think it would be funny if you called it the state of black 
stuff, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's the state of black-ish. We know what it is. I have a colleague at my podcast network named Dan McCoy, who's a writer on The Daily Show, and I'm picturing Dan McCoy pitching you that joke right now. Oh, dude, it's the the way that the minds work in the writer's ring, the writer's wing of The Daily Show. They are the red blood cells of the show. That entire operation banks on a guy like Dan McCoy having his coffee and petting his cat in the morning and making sure that he's in a good mood to create some stuff. Because this is the same guy who can tell you the history and lineage of Klanons dating back to the original Star Trek series in the 60s. <laughs> and then he can also go, you know what else would be funny? A Gail King joke. <laughs> well, everybody loves that kind Gail. of diversity. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? She's everybody's best friend. <laughs> you seem like you're almost fanatical about making sure that your take and your perspective isn't one that other people have heard. Yeah, it's definitely – the problem is that as a comedian, we used to be the voice box of the people. I I feel like comedians got more acclaim for saying what everyone else was thinking. So you take a George Carlin or you give me 90s Chris Rock where everybody was thinking that but had nowhere to say it. You weren't writing op-eds for a newspaper. There was nowhere on the Internet for you to voice that opinion. But fast forward now, 20, 25 years later, I'm saying the same thing you're saying, then I'm not interesting. That used to be the thing that comedians were heralded for. But now you get on Twitter and a comic may have a thought about a joke, but honestly, that joke and that thought may have been done and said 12 different ways by the time you get it on stage, develop and polish it and put it out in an hour special nine months after the inciting incident. So I feel like for me as a performer, I'm better served to the public at large if I can help you look at this issue through a different prism or let's look at it in a way that no one else has looked at it. I want to play a joke of yours. This is in your special father figure, but this is a version that you told on Conan a few years ago. And Conan, of course, tapes in L.A. And at the time, you were living in L.A. And you went on the show and and talked about dealing with not necessarily understanding the, the cultural rules of gangs in L.A. I don't understand people, man. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I live in L.A. now. And what what no one tells you before you come to L.A. is that the gangs are still serious. They're they're very serious in L.A. They get mad if you wear the wrong color and the wrong neighborhood. Here's the problem with being black. All right. There's a lot of problems with being black. Here's one of the problems with being black is that if you wear the wrong color shirt and the wrong hood, the gang dude wanted to fight me. I'm wearing a red polo. It was a nice two-button polo. Why can't I wear a red shirt again? I'm 34. I'm grown. I should be allowed to wear a normal colored shirt again, sir. Why are you in my face? What hood you claiming? What hood you claiming? I'm claiming adulthood, sir. That's my hood. I'm grown now. I didn't understand it because I had a blazer on. I had on a red two-button polo with a blazer on on top of the shirt. How could you possibly confuse me with the gang? Even if I am in a gang, obviously I'm a supervisor. You're out of line. 
I feel like gang adjacent is an undertold story. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a part of that that, for me, that never left me, you know? And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, I was raised by, like, and I joke about this, but it's serious. Part of the reason why I'm a Miami Dolphins fan is because they were gang-safe colors. And growing up, I knew I could, with confidence, wear turquoise and coral and know I would not be attacked because there was no gang rocking coral where I was from, at least. <laughs> the easiest thing to let gang members know that I wasn't in a gang is that I used to walk home carrying a flute and a soccer ball, <laughs> which pretty much lets them know, hey, I'm Switzerland. <laughs> you know, Come take my lunch money. Sure, that's fine. But at least I'm not going to get shot. I, I, I had a decent relationship with gang members in my neighborhood because... When I was in the fifth grade, my mother bought a basketball goal. She had a basketball goal installed in our driveway, plexiglass with a breakaway rim. So we were one of the few houses in the neighborhood that had a two-car garage. And the way the garage was set up, the width of it, we could play almost half court. If you played off into the dirt a little bit, we were essentially playing half-court basketball. And most of the people in gangs would come and shoot ball at our house because we also had really tall trees. So it was the only shaded court in the neighborhood in the middle of July at two in the afternoon, in the dead of summer. So a lot of the gangbangers in the hood knew that if you mess with me, you can't come and shoot ball. So it pretty much gave me some degree of protection in the hood. Like I remember walking home with friends and bangers would pull up and steal their sneakers and leave me alone, which which going like now that I'm older, I wish they'd have stole my sneakers too and then just gave them back to me because <laughs> it looked like I was setting them up. <laughs> like, hey man, don't you want to go to computer classes at the library? And then we cut through the South Park projects, and there they would be, and they would jam them up against the wall and take their Barclays or the Jordans or whatever. And I'd just be standing there with my soccer ball, like, oh, that sucks for you, barefoot, huh? All the way home, huh? You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Roy Wood Jr. when we come back from a quick break. He's got a long list of complaints in his act, political, social, also regular mundane things, but he isn't especially angry, and he'll tell me how he does it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Withings, creator of the Wi-Fi Smart Scale. Meet your goals with a smart scale that delivers weight, BMI, and body composition. Even a local weather report. See why Tom's Guide named Withings Body Plus the best overall smart scale of 2018. Visit withings.com slash NPR for 30% off any body composition scale. Withings, giving people the tools they need to improve their lives. I'm Bob Boylan, host of NPR's All Songs Considered and creator of the Tiny Desk series. I have a message for unsigned musicians all across America. Enter the 2019 Tiny Desk Contest for a chance to play your very own Tiny Desk concert. It'll change your life. So no matter what kind of music you make, we want to hear from you. Find out more at npr.org slash contest. You have until Sunday, April 14th. Better hurry. 
this is Amy Mann. And I'm Ted Leo. And we have a podcast called The Art of Process. We've been lucky enough over the past year to talk to some of our friends and acquaintances from across the creative spectrum to find out how they actually work. And so I have to write material that makes sense and makes people laugh. I also have to think about what I'm saying to people. If I kick your ass, I'll make you famous. The fight to get LGBTQ representation in the show. Mm-hmm. We weirdly don't know as many musicians as you would expect. I really just became a political speechwriter by accident of realizing that I have accidentally uh, pulled my pants down. <laughs> Listen and subscribe at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcast. It's like if the guinea pig was complicit in helping the scientist. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Roy Wood Jr. We talked last year. He's a stand-up comic whose latest special is called No One Loves You. You can watch it streaming on Comedy Central's website. He's also a regular on The Daily Show. You're from Birmingham, Alabama. Can you tell me what is Birmingham like? Birmingham is, I think, more modern than people think and more present day than people think. And there's definitely a homeliness and a sense of family to that city. Uh, Big city feel, small town attitude, which I think is probably one of the best balances that you could have. Like, you know, people talk about our commutes and wherever they live in these major metropolises. I'd say that Birmingham is probably only 30 minutes wide, no traffic as a city, you know, from end to end. So I feel like when you're dealing with an area that's a little smaller like that, that you definitely have an opportunity to have a little bit more of a sense of family. And, you know, that's the one thing that I always love about home. And I think that's why so many people who are from Birmingham or from Alabama as a whole still keep one foot in the state. They still kind of come around and dabble. You know, you're liable to see Bo Jackson just hanging out somewhere. You're liable to see Charles Barkley or Condoleezza Rice, Courtney Cox. You know, like there's so many people that are from that region that I think, you know, I feel like they all know that this, no matter where you are, this is home. You went away to school at uh, Florida A&M and you came back to Birmingham. Did you come back to Birmingham because... Uh, you didn't have a job and you didn't have anywhere else to go besides yep. your parents' house. Yep. That's why I went there back. Home. That's why I ding, went back ding, home ding, after ding, college. Ding. Yeah. <laughs> ding ding ding. So the problem I had in college, graduating, um, my last two years of school, I spent on the road as a comic. My first two years of comedy, I was still in college. So when I graduated, I had no experience in my field, not even an internship. So you can't just walk into a newspaper or a radio station and go, "Hey, I like to write articles." Do you have any articles? No. I was in Missouri telling jokes for $30. <laughs> so I went home and set up shop at my mom's house, and we made a, you know, it was a gentleman's handshake. And I said, look, let me stay here every year for up to three years. For as long as I make more money each year than I did the year before, I get another year in your house, up to three years. And she took the deal, and, you know, I was able to grow, and I was out the house in two years. Um, the thing that helped me though, was that in Birmingham, I fell into radio because the guy that, uh, Ricky Smiley, who was like, and still is like king of the city. And he's a, he's also a huge national host as well. Yeah. He's syndicated the same as Tom Joyner and Steve Harvey and just as many homes and his name rings out. Um, but I was replacing Ricky when he was still a local comedian and I had an opportunity to, to get on the morning show and replace Ricky. And I kind of lied, but I got on and 
between already being a comic and having a degree in broadcast, it was the perfect melding of two different disciplines. And it, it just, it gelled perfectly because not only was I a comedian, but now I was a comedian that could edit my own segments and understood some of the ins and outs on the radio side of things. And I really appreciated that opportunity, you know, to, to be a part of that. And that's kind of where the dual path, the dual career paths begin where on one side I'm running comedy and the other side I'm running radio. I listen once in a while here in Los Angeles to Big Boy. And I don't think that if you weren't a listener to that kind of radio, you would realize the intensity and the sheen of those programs, like the amount of polish on that show like the only thing that I could compare it to is Radio Lab on NPR. Like the the level of focus of those breaks is astonishing. Like the amount of distance they can cover in twenty three seconds between songs mm-hmm. is unreal. Yeah, and you know we also live in a you know a short attention span culture now where radio and this is a I'm talking brevity and material at a time where radio breaks were four and a half minutes in the morning. Now you're lucky if you can talk for two minutes, maybe 90 seconds. It's bang, 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 shut up, play the next song. Like that's how radio is set up now, at least uh, in the urban sphere. So, you know, we used to play six songs an hour. And by the time I had and hosted my own morning show in 2012, we were playing almost 10 songs an hour. Morning radio hosting still to this day is a very good paying job in a real market. Would you have been happy to have that job and tour regionally as a comic, you know, headline every three months at the local club and, you know, do Jacksonville and whatever was, you know, within mm. within weekend driving distance? The goals was always to grow radio into a syndicated situation and use the syndication base to perform nationally in city, cities where I was syndicated and use television as leverage to justify getting syndicated faster. That was the original business model. Um, I started running into situations where you know, later into my radio career, I started in 01. I moved to LA in 2008. And I was doing radio still over a satellite line in the mornings when I was in LA. But, you know, I just never stopped focusing on my stand up. And the more I looked at stand up in my time in radio, my first six, seven years in radio, what I realized and watching people get fired and watching all of the nitpicking over jokes and content is that stand up is the only thing I'm truly in control of. It's the only it's the only thing that I'll own that nobody can tell me anything about. So I always decided to I decided to focus more on my stand up. And what happened in two thousand six, I got an opportunity to perform at the Montreal Comedy Festival, which is essentially think of it as the Olympic trials for your career or the NFL Combine, if you go here and do well, someone will scoop you up and help you make lots of money and grow your career. And that's faster than radio. It conflicts with radio. So I had to choose. So I chose my career. What kind of comedy did you think you were going to make your name doing? Did you think that you were going to be um, a comic that performed for black audiences? Because that's a good... 
you know, that's a good career, but it's not the only way to make a career as a black stand-up. I feel like people make a choice at some point. Yeah, I think it's a lot, a lot of it boils down to who you believe relates to what you relate to, you know? You talk about what you talk about, and whoever shows up is who shows up. Black people show up. Sometimes white people show up to see me, you know? My audience is definitely more diverse than a lot of guys that have been pegged as urban, but I don't think I disassociated myself from black people. I mean, the first 40 minutes of my hour special is just race. I just talk about race. So I definitely have tried to make sure to talk about issues that are important to me. And I think intrinsically they are automatically important to other black people. Uh, When I started, I just wanted to tell jokes. I didn't care who showed up. And I told jokes everywhere. If you want to make real money as an opening act in the South, you have to appeal to multiple people because there's not enough work in any one demo. Every week you're performing in a different city for a different demo. It might be Rednecks in Paducah, Kentucky, and then the next night you're in Atlanta and you might get shot while you're on stage. And then the next night you're performing for some nice middle-class people. And then the night after that, it's a bunch of 70-year-old black people at a casino in Biloxi, Mississippi. So find me the joke that a dope boy will laugh at, an old person with an oxygen tank will laugh at, and a racist in a country music bar will laugh at. Write that joke. I feel like one of the things that makes your work distinctive from other annoyed comedians, and it may just be because you're from Birmingham, there is a kind of ease to it that not a lot of comedians with a a list of complaints have. There's a kind of, there's almost like a, a gentle breeze quality when you are complaining about something that is pretty much the opposite of, you know, Lewis Black or whatever. Yeah, Lewis Black is going to have an aneurysm one day. Like, he is just like... (laughs) (laughs) He's such a sweet guy. And I talked to him on this show. (laughs) Such a nice man and a former playwright. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I've tried my best to do things that are um, a little more outside the box. Like, I could be mad about something, but I really haven't taken a side as much as I've just tried to point out another prism to the issue. Like, all right, get rid of the Confederate flag or not. Okay, that's fine. We can have that debate. But here's a bigger question. If we get rid of the Confederate flag, how will I know who the dangerous white people are? What concessions are in place for us to now identify dangerous white people if we take the Confederate flag away? So the entire argument becomes about what happens if you got rid of the flag. It's not about whether you should or shouldn't. It's just all in hypothetical land, but it's emphatic and emotional. And you know, that's, you know, for me, that's where I think my comedy thrives the best more often than not. Roy Wood Jr., thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It's so great to get to talk to you. A pleasure. Thank you. Roy Wood Jr., one of the funniest dudes. Uh, catch him on The Daily Show. Check out his album, Father Figure 2. He's also starting out on a big national tour over the rest of the spring and summer. We'll have links to dates up on our website. You can find the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org. 
World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. We want to take this opportunity to thank Shana Deloria, our production fellow for over a year. We got her a Tres Leches cake from Annie's Bakery on 6th Street, right next to MacArthur Park. It's their signature cake. Can't recommend it highly enough. Do be careful, though, because uh, if you put it on your car seat for too long, your car seat is not perfectly flat, so the juices will all leak down into the corner of the box and thence into the crevice in your passenger seat. So be careful with those Tres Leches cakes. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We got help from Casey O'Brien, our new production fellow. Sitting outside the studio right now is Jordan Cowling. Thank you, Jordan. Our interstitial music is by DJW, the great Dan Wally. Thanks to him for sharing it with us. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. They and their label Memphis Industries share it with us. Our thanks to them, of course. And before you go, we have been doing this for more than 15 years. In one form or another, there are literally hundreds of bullseye interviews. I hope you will take a dip into our back catalog sometime. You can do it with your favorite podcast app. You can find all of our shows uh, on our website at MaximumFun.org or just by Googling. Just think of somebody who it seems like was probably on Bullseye sometime and just Google their name and my name and see if it comes up. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter at Bullseye, and on YouTube where we put all our new interviews in easily shareable and viewable form, although usually without much of a video element. Anyway, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.